You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome to AOA. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk markets here with Darren Newsom, Senior Market Analyst with Marchart in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to dive deep into the dairy markets with Lucas Fuse. He's the Dairy Analyst with Robo Ag. And in segment three, we're going to talk infrastructure once again, water infrastructure no less, but not inland waterways. We're going to take a look at dams across the country with Dr. Martin Boyle, Professor of River Science at Duke and the director of the Water Policy Project. And we're going to close the show with our friends over at Clean Fuels Alliance America. Yesterday, they testified in front of the EPA on the renewable volume obligations for biofuel, biodiesel in particular, and they've got some frustrations. We'll be talking to them to end the program. But let's dive into it here. Taking a look at the markets yesterday and today, Darren Newsom, we saw the corn market catch some attention yesterday. What was moving in that trade? Yeah, good morning, Mike. Everything was moving in the corn market uh, on Tuesday. You know what, from a technical point of view, the first thing we saw was the March contract dropped below last week's low of uh, 648 and a half by one tick, 648 and a quarter. But then it skyrocketed. I mean, it just jumped almost 16 cents within the blink of an eye before you know spending the rest of the day kind of pulling back, but still closing two and a quarter cents higher. What fascinated me about this was a couple things. One, the buying came from both non-commercial and commercial traders. We could see the latter uh, in the uh, in the way the future spreads were trading. And we've still got extremely bullish uh, March, May and May, July spread. So that tells us all we need to know about long term supply and demand. We know it by what we can see in the spreads. On the other, I mean, but what we also saw was the largest trade volume day, total trade volume day in the corn market since December second, uh, and and this is a this is the day. I mean, this is the week of a you know data dump by USDA that everyone's talking about and looking forward to. We saw this on a Tuesday uh, when the report doesn't come out till Thursday. So I found that interesting as well. Follow that up with by the time we got to the evening, national average basis, despite the despite the rally in futures, we saw basis starting to firm again. So, you know, what I see in this market you know, there was all this expectation of available supplies becoming uh, you know, becoming more, uh, more. we could see more of them at the beginning of the year. That seems to have come and gone. We, that seems to have passed. And now merchandisers are out pushing the market again, not only in the futures, but also in basis. They're needing cash corn still. Tells us a lot about domestic demand because exports still pretty slow. We haven't made any sales. Uh, and that's probably one area where of demand that's really a, you know, a cautionary flag uh, as we go further into 23 is we have to see those sales pick up. But for right now, merchandisers are still pushing the market for some corn. Darren, you mentioned exports, and I'm curious because I did see we had some uh, some export uh, purchase announcements, I believe, from Taiwan and South Korea perhaps earlier this week. And it got me wondering if China is going to be forming new relationships in Brazil, growing the amount of their Brazilian soy imports. Does this open up more American corn into places like uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, other Asian countries? You know, when it comes to corn, U.S. has always been the number one. I mean, I shouldn't say always. There is no such thing as always or never in the commodity world. Uh, but U.S. tends to be the world's largest producer, user, and exporter. So actually, the fact that you know China's tightening its its uh, its relationship with Brazil seems like almost every day, every week, every month. That could actually hurt a bit of uh, of the U.S. business. Not that we ship a lot over to China, uh, but you know just the fact that you know that relationship, that trade relationship, continues to grow, continues to to strengthen since we since we add into a trade war back in what 2017, 18. Uh, you know, it's it's a bit of a bothersome thing for uh, for U.S. exports of corn. Indeed it is. Darren, uh, while we're thinking about, uh, well, all the challenges of this past year, one of the mm -hmm. ongoing concerns has been the energy markets. We've seen crude oil being extremely volatile. Natural gas most recently has been moving, but it seems like it's moving back down. Darren, how does this drop in natural gas change investment flows throughout the commodity sector? You know, that's going to be real interesting. That's a great question, Mike, because I was going to post something today. We've seen natural gas lose 
65% of its value. If we just look at the, at, the, at the continuous weekly chart for the nearby futures contract, it has lost 65% of its value since August. This could be, you know, regardless of what fundamentals are, this could be an invitation for some investment money to step back into natural gas. Uh, we aren't seeing it yet. We're kind of hovering near last week's low uh, as we make our way through this week. Still a lot of wild moves, uh, but you know, it, it's there. It, it could, you know, it's hard, as hard as it is to believe this market could be viewed as undervalued. Now, if I was an investor, one of the last things I would want to do is, is to uh, jump into the Widowmaker market. But there's some that are going to do it. They're, you know, their algorithms are going to say, look, this is a buying opportunity. It's lost X amount of its uh, money, uh, of its value. You know, it could be a possible buy. We'll have to see how it plays out. But certainly, I think it's going to invite, uh, invite some investment trade back into natural gas. You know, that downward trend is also evident here in crude oil. WTI mm -hmm. traded down to 74 and change earlier today. Darren, is the trend going to continue downward in crude? Seasonally, this is the time of year crude oil, particularly West Texas Intermediate, turns the corner. Uh, on the five-year uh, seasonal index, it actually, from the first week of, of January, which was last week through like uh, early summer, it just tends to, to move higher. A few little dips here and there, but the general trend is to go higher. On the 10-year index, which is a little bit cooler, you know, it takes more years into account, uh, it's the second week, which is this week when crude oil tends to post its seasonal low before setting sail on a very similar seasonal rally. So, I do think that we're. Uh, this is another market that, that could start to attract investors. We've seen a very sharp sell-off. It's come down to some technical support, still holding you know above that seventy-dollar mark at least for right now. Uh, and let's see if it also brings in some you know, because we're going to see driving demand pick up again as we move towards spring. That's going to tighten up these future spreads. Going to tighten up supply and demand, and I think it's going to bring some money back into that market as well. Darren, you mentioned we could see that tighten up futures spreads there in the crude oil. I'm mm -hmm. looking at some of these other markets, notably lean hogs. The futures spread in those contracts is huge and it is moving a lot. What's happening in the hog market right now? The, the key feature of the hog market is incredible commercial selling. As you mentioned, we're seeing these spreads just explode wider. And that's that's not a bullish sign for the market. I mean, we, we've seen and it's going to be tough to fight against. Now, what was interesting is when the market rallied on Monday, commercial traders were selling. As this market sold off on Tuesday and here early Wednesday, we actually see signs of some commercial buying. And that's what we need to see. That's what's going to have to start to support this market is if the commercial side steps back in, indicates business is picking up, possibly the cash market could start to follow firm up as well. Darren, cattle market, before we let you go, where do you see us moving this week? Oh, cattle market. I'm going to I'm going to stick with uh, Newsom's rule number five, a market that can't go down, won't go down, certainly seems applicable to live cattle for all of the bearish reasons out there, all the bearish fundamental reasons we can't break this market. Even after a couple of days sell off, it comes right back. We'll see what develops on the cash side. But right now, steady to possibly higher by the time we get to Friday. All right, folks, keep an eye on that market. We'll see cash sales as they come out later on this week. We've been speaking with Darren Newsom, Senior Market Analyst with Bar Chart. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on again, Mike. And folks, stick with us. We'll dive in deep to the dairy market with Lucas Fuse when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. collaboration platform on ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go 
and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next Monthly Grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. In farming, you know being early means you're right on time. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can protect your investment and give your farm an advantage all season long. Find the tools and resources you need to spray early and guarantee your weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash spray early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow past site label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA moves along today, and now we're going to turn the focus to the dairy market. We've seen dairy producers be one of those most squeezed by the volatility in input prices over this past year, and now it looks as though Class 3 milk prices are turning down. Joining us for some insight on this market as we head into 2023 is Lucas Fees. He's a senior dairy analyst over at Rabobank. And Lucas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here to chat all things dairy here in the new year. And so much is going on in the dairy world. Lucas, I want to start with this Class 3 milk. That's the contract that a lot of us who are outside the dairy industry are most used to hearing about. And those prices have come down below $20, kind of a line in the sand through 2022. Lucas, where do you see Class 3 milk going from here? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, throughout Q4, just looking back a few weeks here, we saw prices on both Class 3 and Class 4, I guess two of those uh, main dairy price series, just kind of grind slowly and steadily lower here. Uh, last week, you know, when cheese was struggling after the start of the new year, we actually had both of those price series below the $18 per hundredweight mark. It's not something that dairy farmers really in any region of the country are really comfortable with seeing here as we look towards futures markets here throughout the rest of the calendar year. I think that looking from the supply side, you know, the U.S. has firmly returned to milk production growth. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on with demand, whether it's domestic or exports. But for right now, you know, uh, there's not much upside here in some of these markets. We're waiting for overseas demand to really kind of recover, maybe China to start buying. And domestically, we have consumers kind of uh, struggling with inflation and higher costs here. Uh, all, of course, while we've got higher supply. So for now, uh, the outlook may be not the best for dairy farmers here, at least in the next few months until something changes. Okay. And Lucas, let's start with that supply discussion. Uh, we've seen, as you mentioned, the U.S. dairy herd back in that supply growth mode. We're seeing milk production increase. Given the high input prices we're seeing throughout the industry with class three under $20, can that supply expansion continue? 
You know, in the near term, I think, yes. I think as we move towards the spring flush here, thinking that peak seasonal milk into April and May, we will remain higher versus prior year. And probably throughout the first half of this year, we'll see heavier supplies. That's driven mostly as farmers kind of added cows throughout 2022 after we saw very good prices uh, last spring, last summer, which uh, caused farmers to kind of add cows to the herd in hopes that those positive margins would persist. I do think, though, that it kind of takes a little while to steer the ship on some of this, and farmers have probably paused those decisions right now as we look towards uh, contracting margins and questionable profitability. The back half of the year is the big wild card, but from Rabobank's perspective here, we do expect uh, supply growth around one, maybe a little bit higher than 1% for 2023 as a whole. Okay, so we've got to find the demand on the other side of that ledger. And Lucas, one of the dairy stories that has really grabbed my attention over the past several years has been the push for American consumers for real butter. We've seen butter demand skyrocket. Is that a trend that's still in place as we come out of the uh, coronavirus pandemic? Absolutely, it is. You know, the the CME spot butter price, that daily price that we watch so closely, we hit a new all-time record high in October. Of course, Q4 being the typical peak demand season for butter as so many consumers flock to the grocery store to stock up for holiday baking. That price has kind of come off a little bit seasonally here as we've moved past those year-end holidays, but we do expect butter prices to remain kind of higher than uh, what we typically would consider average throughout 2023. Consumers just really used to that, you know, single ingredient product. Uh, and even on the food service side as well, we continue to hear reports of restaurants, fast food chains, you know, kind of whatever food service restaurant they're in, kind of switch over to that butter for the taste and kind of the simple ingredient. So maybe a, a ray of hope here in dairy markets as butter is expected to remain slightly higher than average throughout uh, the coming year as that demand persists. All right, that is good news. It's great to have a, have a use for all of that high fat dairy product. Similar question to you, Lucas, on the cheese front. That's another story where American consumers have gone wild for cheese. Same question, is that continuing? Do we expect that to persist through 2023? We do expect pretty decent cheese demand. Uh, from the domestic side, we continue year after year to uh, eat more and more cheese on a per capita basis here in the United States. And uh, also a bright spot is our cheese exports. We saw another record year in 2022, uh, most recent data only through November, but uh, even without that full year data, we've, uh, we've hit a new record high there. I do expect that to uh, continue to be a bright spot. However, maybe the, the slight issue with cheese is uh, there's also been heavy investments in production capacity and processing capacity. So even though that demand has continued to grow and we're also producing a lot more of it. So that market from a price perspective kind of remains a little bit more in balance versus uh, what we've seen in butter with that skyrocketing price. Lucas, the addition of more processing or different processing is a is a fascinating feature of the dairy industry. And I'm wondering, as you see that additional butter, cheese, yogurt processing grow, is it changing the geography of dairy production? Are we still seeing more cows leave the coasts and come to the heartland? Yeah, I think that's a general trend that we've seen over the past few years and one that I do expect will pretty much continue here uh, into the future. You know, states like South Dakota, states like Kansas, and even into the Texas panhandle, that whole heartland of the country. I think uh, when I think of that part of the country, I think wide open spaces, room for larger dairies. And even though uh, it's kind of far from the coasts and maybe not as conducive for export markets, it is uh, the area where we've seen the most growth from both uh, farms and processing capacity. I do expect that to persist here into the coming years. All right, Lucas, let's turn our focus back outside the United States borders. We're hearing trouble for dairy producers in Australia and New Zealand as a result of some, some new government uh, controls on emissions. Similar story over in Europe. As you look out through 2023, is there the potential for that international demand to come to the U.S. market? 
That is a very, very good point and one that uh, we here at Rabobank are pretty bullish on. Uh, your point is exactly correct. You know, struggling uh, milk production in uh, all those key competitive regions really uh, leaves the U.S. as the uh, only kind of key region that will continue to see growth here. As we do expect, you know, global dairy demand to kind of steadily grow in the coming years, I think the U.S. is very, very well positioned to capitalize on that increased global demand. Yeah, whether it's environmental restrictions, whether it's land use, uh, there's just kind of a variety of, of things in, in the European Union and in New Zealand that have really uh, kind of uh, driven what some would say is peak milk or peak cow in those regions. Uh, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very exciting that the U.S. is well positioned to kind of supply the rest of the world that continues to need dairy products. Indeed it is, Lucas. And when we think of dairy exports broadly, you mentioned we hit a record this past year with cheese. But as we think of other dairy exports, is it primarily the dry products, the dehydrated products that are exported? Yeah, that's usually a good rule of thumb. You know, when you think about putting dairy products on uh, these big ocean freight uh, shipping boats, uh, it's, it's generally those dry products that do really well with that. And um, and in some cases, cheese as well, of course. But yeah, products like nonfat dry milk or what the rest of the world calls skim milk powder and also things like whey or permeates or lactose. Uh, those are kind of the, the critical products that we look to uh, when we measure U.S. dairy exports. And from a pricing perspective on the international scene, how are we compared to our international competitors on those dry products? Yeah, throughout um, throughout 2022, the U.S. was fairly price competitive versus uh, places like the European Union and New Zealand. So that did drive some pretty significant business towards the U.S. and kind of allowed us to really uh, see pretty impressive exports throughout most of those product categories. However, uh, over the past uh, few weeks, the a lot of global dairy prices have kind of come into alignment here. So kind of removes a little bit of that competitive advantage that the U.S. has. But like I said, from the supply side and from product availability, uh, hopefully that still continues to drive those shipments away from U.S. borders here into the coming year. Indeed, it would be fantastic for America to be to the dairy provider for the rest of the world. Hopefully it'll put some more dollars into American dairymen's pockets. Folks, we have been talking with Lucas Fees. He is the senior dairy analyst at Rabobank. And Lucas, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to talk dams, infrastructure repair with Dr. Martin Doyle of Duke University. Stay with us for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at what's going on in grains and livestock here on this Wednesday. One day ahead of the January World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report. Good strength overall in the grain trade with the soy complex leading the way. Beans, bean meal up moderately. A little bit of strength in bean oil with crude oil up a little over 1%. 
Well, a quarter wheat are trading relatively firm around unchanged here today. Now, Argentina drought is taking its toll on quartered soybean crops in the region with moisture stress expected to continue amid high temperatures over roughly two-thirds of the grain belt over the next 10 days. Now, many folks expecting USDA will make adjustments and begin reducing Argentine quarter soybean production estimates in tomorrow's WASDE crop report with more significant cuts coming in February. The other thing we're watching is for potential surprises in USDA's quarterly corn stocks report as we'll get the WASDE and quarterly grain stocks numbers both out on Thursday. So very big day for USDA reports. And one would have to imagine ahead of these reports here today and into tomorrow as well, we could see a little bit of position squaring throughout the trade. Meantime, over in livestock, moderate losses being seen there as we're looking at some demand uncertainty again, gripping both the cattle and hog market. Traders looking for direction here in cattle. We expect cash cattle trade to really not pick up until at least Thursday. We expect it to be a little bit higher, but still, it's going to be probably another day before we get cash activity going. Meantime, hogs moderately lower here on this Wednesday, but that February contract has a chart gap to uh, close here, and many times the market will move in the opposite direction once a gap is closed, but hog fundamentals showing a little reason to see prolonged strength, so it's something to keep an eye on there. Overall, again, quartered wheat mixed right around unchanged soybeans, mainly 5 to 10 cents higher. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. For most of our listeners here over the past three years, when we've been talking about water, it's been in the context of drought. We've had low river levels. We've had low water levels at reservoirs across so much of this country. But as 2023 kicks off, and as we talk to John Baranek each Monday on the program, we're watching that La Nina fade, the El Nino make a comeback, and we're seeing these rivers of moisture flow into California. All of this is emphasizing another important part of our water infrastructure, which is dams. Are we going to be able to retain all of this water and what risks are out there for the economy? Well, Dr. Martin Doyle is the director of the Water Policy Program at the Nichols Institute for Energy at Duke University. He's also a professor of river science there at Duke, and he joins us now recently highlighting some of the risks of dam infrastructure across the country. Dr. Doyle, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. When we think about dams, water retention infrastructure, Dr. Doyle, we've got a lot of them across this country, and they've been put in over a series of years. Can you tell us about the scope of how many dams we're dealing with here across the country? Uh, we're dealing in the tens of thousands, maybe upwards of 100,000. So the current estimate is that we have about 90,000 dams in the United States. Um, and if you do the math, that turns out to be about one built per day since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, wow. One per day since the signing of the Declaration. Now, Dr. Doyle, that was quite some time ago. The age on some of this infrastructure starting to get up there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what we're really dealing with is... Uh, 
the vast majority of these dams are what I call geriatric infrastructure. So we, we built a big chunk of these uh, during the baby boomer generation. So the 1920s, 30s through the 50s. Uh, and a lot of these are intended to have somewhere between a 50 and 100 year design life. Um, and so the, the majority of our dams are privately owned. You know, the exception is Hoover Dam or, um, you know, one of these big federal dams. Most dams are small. Most dams are private and a big chunk of these dams are no longer meeting their intended purpose. And this is a huge issue. It's a huge issue both in terms of infrastructure and keeping all of this water in the place we want it to be, but it's also a huge issue in terms of paying for the rehab and repairs. Dr. Doyle, why is it so hard for these dams to get the funding they need for rehabilitation, repair, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of other infrastructure, uh, water resources infrastructure, and specifically dam, it's just really expensive. Um, and so uh, what we're looking at is uh, large infrastructure, or at least a lot of infrastructure. Um, a lot dealing with it is really complicated. So you've got uh, flowing rivers, uh, you often have power involved, um, and you have a lot of engineering involved. Um, and so the price tag, uh, the American, uh, the, state, the state dam safety office, estimates that we're somewhere in the 75 to $100 billion range as needed to, uh, to repair and rehabilitate uh, the nation's dams. And some of that needs to be spent on actually removing some of these obsolete dams as well. Oh, that's a great point. It's not just rehab. Sometimes it's clearing the waterway. But Dr. Doyle, if we get $75 billion, but most of these dams are in private hands, how is that money going to get the job done? Yeah, so what we're trying, what the federal government is trying to do is um, use loan guarantee programs or loan programs. And so uh, what, the, what the Corps of Engineers has just uh, putting out is uh, the, what's called the, the Core Water Infrastructure Finance Program. Um, and what they're doing is similar to what uh, the federal government has done in other uh, cases, uh, like the State Revolving Fund for more uh, kind of water utility infrastructure. Um, the core program is going to be a loan program for non-federal infrastructure. Uh, so these, since most dams are not owned by or operated by the federal government, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, water utility districts or irrigation districts or uh, drainage districts that have a dam that needs uh, some capital. Uh, this loan uh, program would basically uh, be available to them. Uh, it would be at a subsidized rate and it would be at very beneficial uh, kind of long-term financing. So what the federal government is trying to do is uh, start this off um, by trying to get some low-cost capital um, into the hands of these infrastructure owners, um, usually assuming that the lo local infrastructure owners, um, they know what needs to be done, they know how to do it, they just need access to some capital at some beneficial terms. And that Core Water Infrastructure Financing Program, CWIFP, I understand it has about $7.5 billion, uh, Dr. Doyle. That's about 10% of what you mentioned we would need in order to rehab and rehabilitate these dams. How are, what's going to be the criteria for deciding what dams get funding? Do we know yet? Uh, we really don't. I mean, this program is just uh, getting going. Um, the, the Corps of Engineers has a lot of experience with dams, um, and they, uh, they also permit uh, non-federal dams as well. Um, and so uh, they're going to be soliciting applications for this program, um, and then they're going to be assessing and coming up with a scoring criteria of how they're going to evaluate what projects get that. Um, but what we're hoping is that this can be that the capital that the core has uh, can also be used as a way to leverage uh, some other sources of funding. Um, and so rather than just using it as a direct loan, potentially what I'm hoping that the core can do um, is start to kind of combine this kind of capital with some other sources of capital and do what we call layer these, these loans of kind of using a few different pots of money to get at some of the price tag. Because um, as you point out, we're, we're only at about 10% of the total estimated cost. Um, but we've got to figure out some clever ways to do this because we have 75 billion now and that price tag is not going to go down. Um, it's just going to keep going up as we defer this infrastructure maintenance. That's so true. I'm wondering this CWIFP fund, would it be allowed for use on construction of new dams or is it solely for existing infrastructure that's already out there? Focusing right now on rehabilitation. Um, in fact, Right now, uh, building a new dam in the United States is uh, prohibitively expensive and time consuming. Um, it just, it's very difficult to go through the permitting process. Um, and to be honest, as a hydrologist and hydraulic engineer, most of the good sites for dams are taken. 
Uh, we've been building dams again for uh, more than two centuries. Um, and if there's a good place to build a dam, it probably has already been plugged. Um, so there's a lot of retrofitting of dams, uh, raising dams to increase the storage capacity. Um, but what we're really facing now is um, how do we sustain this investment that our nation has already made? Um, how do we, uh, you know, we, we built a lot of these in the Great Depression. We built a lot of these in the Eisenhower era. Um, and a lot of them are still very operational and very beneficial. Um, and we just want to get as much out of them as we possibly can. And that's really where this focus on rehabilitation comes in. Uh, the removal focus is something that I'm probably uh, overly fixated on sometimes. Um, but the idea there is that uh, any of these small dams are, uh, they're hazards. Um, we get, we always have, you know, I always read the newspaper once a year or so where a teenage kid is drowned in, a, in the spillway of a small dam. Um, and so if we can just get some of these small dams off of our waterways um, and allow us to really focus our attention long term on um, these critical pieces of infrastructure that farmers need, that irrigators need, um, that we, we move a lot of our uh, grain traffic by barge up and down the major waterways. And uh, that barge traffic is dependent on stabilizing of flows from the from our nation's reservoirs. You know, you mentioned the inland waterway system, of course, locks and dams are a crucial component of that. Would any of this uh, core funds be able to be used on the inland waterway dams? Or is that a separate pile of money for that whole infrastructure system? It's a really good question. One of, one of the things, uh, the, the $7.5 billion from, the, uh, from this program is specifically for non-federal dams, but there's a lot of infrastructure that, that, that has a little bit of federal and a lot of private, or maybe a little bit of private and a lot of federal. Um, and so one of the things that the Corps of Engineers, as well as budget officers in the federal government, are going to have to wrestle with is um, how much is too much federal? Um, but we know that we really need some recapitalization of some of the lock and dams, especially on uh, corridors like the Ohio River um, and the upper Mississippi. Um, and so uh, ensuring that we either get uh, sufficient appropriations for that infrastructure or that we can use some of these alternative approaches, um, this is really what the federal government for the next decade is going to have to be uh, really confronting uh, to, to make sure that we are able to make the most use of these investments we've already made. Absolutely. Keep that balancing between the funding sources in a way that makes sense for the project uh, uh, performance. Now, Dr. Doyle, we've just come out of three years of drought. You mentioned it's prohibitive to put a new dam in place. Are we rethinking water storage, hopefully, as we move out of this La Nina in this country? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, one of the big wrestling uh, intellectual and scientific and technical things that we're really having to deal with in the water sector is um, each dam, each reservoir uh, has a finite storage capacity, uh, and the more water we store uh, in order to irrigate or to provide drinking water, the less water we're able to store during a flood. And so um, there's basically not just the dam itself, but we also have operations of the dam. So how are we going to operate those dams um, under these uh, extreme whiplash conditions? I mean, going from a drought of record in California to floods of record within a period of weeks. Um, and it, it's just very difficult to operate really large infrastructure when the dries are getting drier and the wets are getting wetter. Um, so I think you're going to see a combination of federal agency, state agency, and uh, local agencies as well, um, really digging into um, uh, rethinking infrastructure, not just in terms of you know, the concrete itself, but also um, how do we operate these in a way that's um, adaptive to changing conditions. Uh, the word in the science and engineering community is resilient. Uh, can we operate these six pieces of infrastructure in a more resilient way? That is the question, and that discussion will be ongoing in 2023. We'll check in with Dr. Doyle again, folks. We've been talking with Dr. Martin Doyle of Duke University, recently wrote a piece called The Long-Term Federal Financing is Critical for U.S. Dam Rehabilitation. You can find it on thehill.com. Dr. Doyle, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. And folks, stay tuned. We'll talk RVOs from EPA when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. In farming, you know being early means you're right on time. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can protect your investment and give your farm an advantage all season long. Find the tools and resources you need to spray early and guarantee your weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash spray early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Is your bathroom looking old and worn out? Want to update it, but you don't know where to start? Then let BCI Bath & Shower show you how to turn that old bath into an aisle of beauty and functionality. Our residential bathroom solutions provide the best value on the market, and our customer service is second to none. Our cost-effective BCI Bath & Shower family of products has what you need. Remodeling our bathroom was a big decision for us. They didn't make a mess out of our house at all. And at the end of the day, we had a beautiful new bathroom. And it was a great experience the whole way through. We have the best monthly payment programs in the industry, with payments as low as $68 per month, or no interest, no payments for 18 months. For a limited time, be one of the first 100 callers who schedule a free in-home consultation and receive $500 off. Call 800-721-9985 for a free no-obligation price quote. That's 800-721-9985. Factory trained and certified installers made in the USA and discounts for seniors and military. BCI Bath & Shower, the leader in affordable bathroom products. That's 800-721-9985. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.
This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. Yesterday, EPA held a virtual roundtable discussion on the December release of their renewable volume obligations, basically the requirements for biofuels blended into conventional diesel fuels. And while corn producer, biofuel ethanol producers, were fairly pleased with the announcement Biodiesel producers were less thrilled. Joining us today is Kurt Kovark. He's the Vice President of Federal Affairs for the Clean Fuels Alliance America. And Kurt, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Glad to be with you, Mike. Let's talk about these RVOs for biodiesels. Kurt, EPA seems like they did not give the industry enough credit, only a 65 million gallon increase. I assume you brought that to their attention yesterday. We absolutely did. We had about uh, 15. Uh, individuals, both producers, farmer representatives, uh, clean fuel staff, uh, deliver three minutes of, of remarks apiece, uh, in addition to about a dozen or so, so soybean farmers from around the country who also delivered the same message. And that was EPA entirely missed the mark when it, it came to uh, their proposal for setting volumes for a biomass-based diesel. This is a three-year proposal for, for the years 23, 24, and 25. It should have been a great opportunity for EPA to send the market signals as Congress intended to use the program uh, to, to push the market for low carbon biofuels. And as you said, the conventional uh, ethanol industry is, is relatively content with their volume. Ours, uh, as you said, they proposed about an average of 65 million gallons of additional volume uh, for each of the next three years. Our own Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, which is a non-partisan, non-political uh, data collection agency, just today came out with an estimate that there's going to be an additional 600 million gallons of biodiesel added over the next two years. Why would you so propose a volume increase of 65, which is one-tenth of what uh, DOE is projecting is going to come online? It makes no sense. Exactly. And help connect the dots all the way through to the end, Kurt. Why does, if the industry is prepared for 600 million gallons as things sit today, why does the RVO matter? Can you connect those for us? How does this encourage Absolutely. those production facilities to come online? There's a whole host of economic factors that uh, a bio biomass-based diesel producer, a feedstock provider, a marketer uh, weighs when making the decision as to whether they're going to make a, a, a significant capital investment in a project. For example, throughout the Midwest, I think we've seen about $4.5 billion worth of soybean crush and canola crush expansions announced. We've seen billions of gallons of announcements of uh, refinery, existing petroleum refinery conversions to renewable, renewable diesel. Now, those calculations uh, and the decision to go forward with that uh, conversion or those investments is dependent upon a large extent to federal policy, state policies that are driving carbon, uh, low carbon fuels and the market for it. That decision was predicated on the fact that, you know, you would expect EPA to see what's happening in the market, understand what the demand is and support that through a volume obligation through the RFS. I would not be surprised if you see some of these soybean crush announcements being put on, on hold or paused, or even some of these renewable diesel announcements being paused to see what the final numbers are from EPA, because there's a certain level of value that the volume obligations offer to the, to the feedstock provider, to the soybean crusher, to the biofuels producer, uh, through the value of uh, the renewable volume obligation from EPA. If that value is not there, if EPA undermines that market, uh, you know, some of these projects may not be economical and, and won't come to fruition. So that's, Kurt, that's, the, that's the crux of the issue. And what's really at stake here is if, if you want value added agriculture in the Midwest uh, of this country to support, support our soybean farmers, to support value added agriculture, e EPA is pulling the rug out from under it. 
Indeed. And it's that value-added agriculture processing those beans here in the United States, selling a value-added product, puts more dollars into the pockets of folks in the ag industry. Kurt, as we mentioned, this is the proposed renewable volume obligation from EPA. That final won't be released until when do we expect? Later on this year? June uh, 14th, I believe, is the date by which they're required to release it. We've got a public comment period uh, through February 10th. We will be weighing in heavily. Uh, I encourage anybody who's supportive of uh, soybean oil, biodiesel, ethanol, uh, all the above uh, in terms of uh, the value add to agriculture to weigh in with the EPA to get this right. And Kurt, when, when, if we're weighing in with the EPA, the goal is to push for that 500 million gallon increase versus the 65 annually. Is that what you're pushing for? That's exactly right. Our industry has asked for a minimum of a 500 million gallon increase annually over the th- three-year proposal. Do we have the feedstocks, the, the stuff we need, beans or product to make into enough uh, diesel, uh, renewable diesel to fill that requirement? We absolutely do. Uh, but it, it, it requires multiple years of uh, proper signals being sent to the market to make sure it comes to fruition. And you, you talked a little bit about value-added agriculture. It's not just for uh, the farmer and getting more for the commodity. Think about all the additional soybean meal that we will have available for our livestock producers and other high-value high protein available uh, for, for a myriad of industries. All of those are residual effects, the side effects of the benefit of us, our industry, and our biodiesel producers adding value to the oil makes a whole myriad of other products available beyond just adding value to uh, the bottom line for that soybean farmer. Absolutely. So, Kurt, if we've got listeners out here, they want to make their voice heard to the EPA, they want to get their, their complaints on record, what's the best way to go about doing that? They can go through our website at cleanfuels.org. We've got an advocacy center set up. Uh, the, the text of the letter is already written. All they have to do is add in their uh, contact information, or they can use it to write their own letter, or contact us, and we'll, we'll help you get your message into the EPA. Fantastic, folks. Find that at cleanfuels.org. We've been talking with Kurt Kovarik, their Vice President of Federal Affairs. Kurt, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be with you. And thanks for joining us today, folks. Tune in tomorrow. We'll have more AOA when we return. Take care, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the Monthly Grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. Collaboration Platform on Ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next Monthly Grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.